this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod, a podcast about Black culture from Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddins. And I am Brittany Luce. So last summer, we asked you, the listener, to pick your favorite episodes of The Nod for our Best of the Nod series. Well, this month, we thought we would share some of our favorite episodes with all of you. Yes, and today, we are sharing Eric's choice. Yes. So, Eric, what was one of the most memorable episodes for you from our catalog so far? Well, one of my favorite episodes Uh that we've done is Uh a story called On That Low Life Shit. You stay on that low-life shit. I do. I try. <laughs> uh, it was produced by the Nod alum, Mr. James T. Green, yes. and myself. I love it because it includes so many of my favorite story elements. It has scammers, crime, fashion, mm. old-school rap music, success, failure, friendship. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. Mm-hmm. So, fresh out the box, stop, look and watch, ready yet, get set. Mm. It's... So, I've been a huge polo fan for a long time. It's an understatement, but yeah. It was actually kind of a problem for a while. (laughs) What do you mean by problem? So, like, for example, in middle school, we had this, like, big bus trip. Like, you know, you do, like, the overnight trip. Mm. It's, like, a big deal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We went from Memphis to D.C., and my mom gave me some money for, like, lunch and souvenirs. You know, it was supposed to last me throughout the whole time. What did you do with the money? See, what happened was (laughs) we stopped at an outlet store on the way, and they had a polo shop, like a polo outlet. Yeah, I went crazy in there. (laughs) Uh, I spent every last dime of my money. But, like, I wanted to come back with as many different pieces as possible. So it looked like I got, like, really high value, Uh you know? Okay. But I could only afford (laughs) (laughs) T-shirts. So I literally bought like six or seven polo t-shirts and blew all my money to the point where a teacher had to actually loan me money for the rest of the trip to be able to like eat and stuff. (laughs) I'm going to give you a pass on this only because you were 13. Yeah. Needless to say, polo drove me to do some crazy things. And the reason why I was so into polo, it actually started online. Like, when I was that age, I would Google to find, like, images and websites for, like, polo inspiration. Lospo, if you will. You know? You're laughing with me, right? If only you had Instagram. If only. (laughs) Right? Oh, my God. But 
in these searches, like, I started to, like, notice something, you know? It was, like, the same people were actually popping up image after image. It was, like, candids. Uh, like, folks would be in the club, on the corner. It looked like the early 90s. It was a group of people literally in all polo, like, polo from the top down. Mm. Hat, jacket, shirt, shirt over it. Scarf. You you know you know about that life. Polo jeans. <laughs> you know, polo was like a really preppy brand. Um, you know, it was made for like like white folks who do like crew and shit like that. <laughs> but the way they wore it, it was like it was different. It felt like hood. It was a little oversized. Everyone's hat was turned to the back, not like crimped down like a dad hat. This was a big deal for me as a kid. Like seeing the stuff up on my computer at home. They were just so fresh. Like, in this way, I wasn't. And I wanted that, you know? Like, I wanted to look just like that. So, like, like who were these guys? Well, they were like an official group. They were like a squad. Yes. Like a, like a polo squad. They had a name. They had a name? Yes. The Low Lives. And the other day, I was thinking about the Low Lives, and I started to look into them. And the more I went down the rabbit hole, I realized they put Polo on the map for a lot of kids like me. And the story of how they did that blew my mind. I heard all about it from one of the Low Life's founders. This Thurston Howell III, Polo Rican, Skillionaire, Low Life General, MGV Brownsville all day. My man said Polo Rican. <laughs> <laughs> and it's accurate, though. <laughs> So the story of how Polo went from the streets of New York to my living room in Memphis, it starts with this guy. In 1988, Thurston was a teenager going by the name Vic Lowe. He and his friends would trek from Brownsville, Brooklyn, into Manhattan, and their crew was massive. Imagine, you know, 40 dudes out hanging out, partying, and they just link up with another 50, 60 dudes, and they start hanging together in one night. Our main spot was Times Square, when Times Square was considered the deuce, when it was grimy and dirty and there was pimps and prostitutes and pushers. And, you know, it was, a, it was a whole different environment up there. It was pretty dangerous. Thurston and his friends were from the Marcus Garvey Projects in Brownsville. But they ended up linking up with another crew from Crown Heights to form, like, a super crew, you know? And are you ready for this? Uh-huh. So they would go into department stores and just, like, swarm the place. Folks everywhere, grabbing everything that they could. I'm talking shirts, sweaters, pants, even scarves, definitely hats. They just snatch everything and bolt out the door, trying to avoid every single cop on the way. Oh, what? <laughs> Listening to the shit was riveting. <laughs> I mean, I, I see why. I see why. And so all these kids from different parts of Brooklyn and Queens decided to join together and form a massive crew and together, they found this mutual love for looking really fresh, sticking up tourists, and <laughs> shoplifting designer threads, you know. And, of course, the brand that brought them all together was... Polo, obviously. Yes. Polo was their favorite brand because it had super bright colors and prints. And they settled on a name, The Low Lives. Because the only other option would have been, like, the Poe Life crew. And, you know, that's, like, too close to home. <laughs> yeah. That's not aspirational. <laughs> exactly. So the Low Lives became a family. And like any family, there was a little sibling rivalry. Who was the freshest? Was it you? 
Oh, everybody in low life is going to say it was them. Of course, <laughs> I'm going to say it was me. I was a fly-ass motherfucker. Not only that, I was Puerto Rican. You know, everybody was black in low life at this time. But being Puerto Rican, all the black girls love you. That's all I can say. <laughs> I don't have anything to say about that. Okay, so the jury is still out on who was the freshest in the crew. But, like, Thurston had the sauce, you know? He became, like, one of the leaders of the lowlifes, especially on their boosting sprees. They would take whatever they could grab and bring it back to Brooklyn. They'd keep some of the pieces for themselves, but the rest they'd resold in the neighborhood for, like, a much cheaper than retail price. All this, it was exciting for them. Like, every new boost was an adventure. Just, just imagine, you know, you're going to hit a store, you got a target. We all ride in the train together. We know where we're going. People were so anxious to beat out the guy next to you. When the train doors would open up, everybody would race to the store to get in. Just race you there and try to take more than you could take and run out with more than the next person. This was a constant everyday thing. You gotta be so fast to do that. Like, I'm just trying to think of what it takes to have a whole group of people walk into a department store and just like rush it. I don't know. Literally, I don't know. I would have. I would have been the first one caught straight up. <laughs> <laughs> That's coordination, though. Yes. So they were boosting, and it was illegal, but it helped them make you know make bread, make ends meet, and like just feel a little better about you know life in the PJs. We all grew up poor with shit. Like, if you see me on the street, I was probably one of the freshest dudes you saw in your life. But when you came to my home, I didn't even have furniture. My crib was fucked up. You know what? I would bring a girl home to my house just like that. She would never complain about how my house looked bad or I didn't have furniture and shit like that because I was confident regardless. I knew who I was. All of us lowlifes were like that. So all throughout the late 80s and early 90s, they kept boosting and making serious money off it. And soon, folks outside New York wanted in. My boy Boosting Billy had ventured out to Philadelphia in the late 80s, and he spread the culture through Philly crazy. And I would travel to a different state, and I would be polo down, and somebody in a different state would tell me, Oh, yeah, you on that low-life stuff, not even knowing who I am or anything. And what was that like to hear somebody tell you about your like your own shit? <laughs> you know, like, to bring I mean, that back to you. We were some egotistic maniacs at the time as well, so that shit was just stroking your ego. There was no humbleness, you know, with it at the time. So, like, now the boosting culture is starting to pop outside the city. And love for polo itself is just spreading like wildfire. And actually, it wasn't just the boosting. See, a lot of folks refer to the late 80s as the golden age of hip-hop. And the lowlifes were in the thick of it. We were everywhere the rappers were. If you look at music videos from the 80s, 90s, you've seen a lot of rappers get with the culture of polo as well. And massive rappers were shouting us out in their songs. You know, it's a long list. Ziggy, the rap group Ziggy, was actually the first rap group out there that was spreading and showing the culture. Talib Kweli, uh, Raekwon was repping it heavy. Onyx always big this up. 
Jay-Z bigs us up in his music. Hip-hop was always about being fresh. But these guys, they were the freshest. And all the rappers took notice. And did you did you guys know them personally? Like, was it just you saw each other in the club and they liked what you were doing, you liked what they were doing? I mean, um... I was in prison just watching all this stuff on TV. After the break, Thurston has an epiphany in his jail cell. Welcome back. So, like, the thing about crime is eventually you're going to get caught. Thurston would find himself in and out of jail. And at the same time, it turned out there was a flip side to getting famous. More and more people knew about the lowlifes. And, you know, that was cool. Like, you see yourself in magazines and rap songs. But the cops didn't care. And more and more lowlifes got locked up. You were representing on, in Rikers Island in the same form and manner. And wearing all that polo in jail, that solidified a lot of us and showed what we were, you know, and it's really helped to establish the respect we had from prison to the street. And actually, ending up in jail was one of the better scenarios. See, being a lowlife meant you constantly had a target on your back. Just hanging on your own fucking block is murder and mayhem every day. People were stealing all the clothes. We bringing that shit home. The motherfuckers was coming to take it from us. You know, like the neighborhood was coming for it. And they knew we were doing this on a daily basis. It, it, it became dangerous. Like, people died. Died? Yeah, so basically they would steal all this stuff and come back, and they were looking real fresh. They had, like, you know, hundreds of dollars of designer mm-hmm. gear on. And, like, folks in the hood would come up to them and be like, I want what you got. Run that. Wow. Yeah, they were losing people all over the place. Like, members were getting picked off by the cops and rival crews. And even Thurston ran out of luck. He went to jail on violent crime charges. Things were looking pretty dire. I'm sitting in jail looking at life. And then I didn't get life. So I'm like, I'm not going to get this shot again. I got another shot. I got to do something. I had to put that shit to the side. I had to stop. You know, or my life was going to be over. I was just going to be in prison forever. And that's when things changed for Thurston. He linked up with some people in prison that told him even if he gave up boosting, like, it didn't mean his life was over. They started pointing out to him, like, hey, man, there are other ways you can get thrills. It doesn't have to be illegal. And Thurston, he'd always loved one thing, rapping. And when he heard that, he was like, oh, well, maybe that could be a legal way for me to make money. Plus... I could still get that same feeling off of writing a fucking song. And then that's when my career began. Low life from the old gold cipher, the polo throw with the night touch. From the era of the DMC leather, so in the silk Riviera, pillin' sweater. So Thurston's released from jail and decides to leave Boosting behind. And he's having the time of his life as an artist. And it was then that he realized, like, if he could get his shit together, the rest of the lowlifes could do the same. 
dudes always had it in them to be every way possible they want to be. You know, that everybody was mostly forced to be gangsters and shit because of the environments we were lived in, you know? But everybody had senses at the same time and smarts and intelligence to know that this wasn't going to be the way forever. He made it his mission to get the lowlifes to go legit. And that wasn't always easy. Sometimes Thurston had to get a little blunt. Listen, motherfucker, I'll tell you like this. You ain't coming around me doing that bullshit. Like when I started doing rap shows and shit, you know, I got 30 motherfuckers want to come with me to, to see me perform. And I let everybody know, yo, don't rob nobody when we go to these spots. Don't fuck nothing up. Then if you go against what the fuck we saying, we going to get you. It's like the conversations we have every time we go. I was going to say, every, before every live show, you're always telling me to make sure I don't rob anybody. Don't rob anybody to but do that. I appreciate in this moment, though, that Thurston is like setting the example, setting his boundaries, but still being very authentically himself. <laughs> right? So, like, Thurston's rap career is blowing up. And meanwhile, he's trying to turn around the lowlife's image. I needed to do promotions. I needed to do different things engineer and you know a lot of low-life founders and stuff were pure gangsters i couldn't get none of these gangster motherfuckers to do nothing like uh, administrative work you know and things like that everybody was too focused on being a gangster being a gangster had been a big part of what made the low-lifes low-lifes but as Thurston went around the globe touring, he saw how people dug the low-life culture. And he got an idea. I was meeting all these other polo heads. And when I would see how they would embrace me, like, you know, I was fairly a new, a new artist. Not too many people knew about. But they knew about Vic Lowe. They knew about me as a low-life or what I was on the streets and things like that. So these people were gravitating to me, but out of sincerity and things like that, and wanting to help. I felt that these dudes needed to be mixed up with the gangster dudes. Like, they all had something to learn from each other to kind of balance it out a little better. And that's exactly what happened. And after that, like, it wasn't even about the boosting. The lowlifes expanded to include all sorts of members, people who had never stole a day in their life. I'm talking official lowlife chapters in places like Toronto, Tokyo, New Zealand. New Zealand? Yes. <laughs> Kiwis. Kiwis. <laughs> Low Kiwi. And they were about that lowlife. <laughs> they were. And they have these like meetups where a DJ will like spin records while folks trade rare polo pieces. Like the boosting was in their rear view. And being a lowlife, it, it became something more. It means culture now. It's, it's, it evolved into a culture. And right around when the lowlights went legit, Polo went public. And the IPO was huge, like over $700 million huge. And you know, who's to say if the lowlights were responsible for that? But you've got to wonder. Either way, they're still obsessed with Polo. And they're still repping the culture here in Brooklyn heavy. My producer James hit me up with some news the other day. The lowlights were having a barbecue here in Brooklyn where it all began. How did you even feel? It was like, it was like the promise of Christmas morning, you know? (laughs) 
So on this like super hot Saturday morning, I went out to like Highland Park in Brooklyn, and like what I saw was wild. And welcome to the 12th annual Low Life Barbecue, y'all. Salute. Back low. Low white. Get your grub on. If you don't have your orange band, stop being a cheap bastard. It's $20. Go get your grub on, all right? Let's go, baby. Sending this one out to my man, Killer B. Imagine the flyest black and brown folks you've ever seen, all in one spot. Like they were all there just decked out from head to toe in polo raffling. Now the culture is not about the boosting, but we can never forget that that's where it come from. That's Sheena. She's married to one of the original lowlifes. His name's Racklow. When I caught up with her, she had just put a couple burgers on the grill, and she explained how the picnic got started. Initially, it was to just get a couple of our friends together because, you know, life was going, going so fast and everybody was having kids and, you know, we didn't really have a place and a time to get together. So we said once a year, you know, we want to invite all our friends, feed them, bring everybody together and, you know, just do something special. This is what the lowlifes do now. They cook out, they have meetups. Thurston is still rapping, but he's also running a low-life clothing line. And they told me they do a lot of charity work now, too, like back-to-school drives, giving away turkeys at Thanksgiving, and raising money for scholarships. It's like a hood rotary club. But at the end of the day, no one forgets that the low-lifes changed hip-hop fashion forever. It's fun, man. It's fun. It's history. It's all history. It's all hip-hop. You know what I'm saying? And everyone I talked to brought it up, like this one cat, Ramses. I used to read about, you know, half of these people here on magazines, how they used to, you know, boost and, and, and go crazy for this low game. And you know what I'm saying? To me, it was different. But, you know, now to be together and show love and spread bread and, and do all this is all low life forever. And that's the part of what's so amazing about this. Like, the low lowlifes went on this crazy journey. Like, because of them, hip hop is different. Like, what we wear is different. Like, hell, if I'm being honest, like, me as a kid, like, I'm different. But... Even though their lives have changed so much and the crew has gotten so big, the original lowlifes, they're just as tight as they were in the 80s. Here's Thurston again. Oh, lowlife low is my family. Those are still my family. Regardless of success and, you know, people moving around and, you know, it never changed who my family was. My best friends are still my best friends from 30 years ago. You know, that it, it's really a family. There's really love and loyalty, you know, like, that's rare. Yeah, I, I know you've heard the term, there's no honor amongst thieves. I I beg to differ. Yeah, 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 yeah. Two L's up. Much love to everybody that came out. Low Life Barbecue 2017. Representing that love and loyalty. You know what I mean? No matter where you came from. I don't know why you think just because you wear polo. You a lowlife? Yeah, yeah. Who him? Yeah, yeah. You not a lowlife. You wasn't with us when we was killing B. Oatmans and, and Macy's. It was the Million Man Rush. I was there. The Million Man Rush. I was there. The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce, Kate Parkinson Morgan, and James T. Green. Our senior producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. We are edited by Jorge Just and Annie Rose Strasser, with editing help from Neil Drummond, engineering from Matthew Bowl and Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. 
Other original music in the show by Khalid B, Taxstar, and Bobby Lord. Additional sound elements provided by Christopher Pfeiffer. Special thank you to Thurston Howell III for sharing his music with us as well. And because we are a new show, we would love it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Horrified horseplay, walking through game rooms on 42nd and Broadway. Mayhem and chaos, 40 out seance. Disco embark him, did the robin. Booty low, playing niggas like they stupido. Ski had a big yacht, he said he'll let me hold if he get knocked. Trouble spelled with the fingers in the form of double L's. Ralph Lowe, Big Boo, Clay and Puck, playing rough. Bionic boosters like my man Steve Austin. At the walk a darn a million men, raise already marching. Polo from head to toe with a button missing from my cardigan. Cardigan. All right, have a great day. Enjoy the gym. <laughs> All right, I'm about to get brolic on y'all real quick. Good 500 motherfucking sets. <laughs> <laughs> word, word, word. It was back in the day. 1998. I'm Eric Eddings. And I started Google. 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 What did you do with the money? I spent every last dime of my money on a scarf. A scarf.